Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Monica Morrow for her take on the most discussed issues in breast surgical oncology, and she began by commenting on her recent editorial in the Journal of Surgical Oncology entitled, The Current Status of Breast Cancer Chemo Prevention, A Star is Born. The paper referred to the results of the so-called STAR trial of the NSABP, which demonstrated equivalent chemo prevention of infiltrating breast cancer with tamoxifen and raloxifene in postmenopausal women, but with a major safety toxicity advantage to raloxifene. Dr. Morrow began by providing an overview of the field. Chemo prevention is something that both funding agencies and medical organizations have held up as an important ideal, but in practice, it really hasn't come to pass very much. And we started with tamoxifen, which is a drug which certainly produces a 50% risk reduction in breast cancer development in women who are at increased risk and an even greater risk reduction in those who are at risk on the basis of atypical hyperplasia on the order of about 80%. But because of the side effect profile of tamoxifen, which at least in postmenopausal women, there is some valid reason for concern because of the risk of endometrial cancer and blood clots in particular, there was never wide uptake of tamoxifen by healthy women. Now, with the raloxifene data coming out of the STAR trial, which was a direct comparison of tamoxifen and raloxifene in high-risk women, I found that to be some very exciting news because what that said was that raloxifene is equivalent to tamoxifen as a chemopreventive, but has a significantly improved side effect profile, lower risk of endometrial cancer, lower risk of DVT, and importantly, has anti-osteoporosis benefits, a major problem in postmenopausal women. So if you look at that, I would say thinking about breast cancer as a disease in the public health sense, we can only identify a relatively small proportion of women, about half who are going to develop breast cancer on the basis of risk factors. But we know that virtually all postmenopausal women are at increased risk for osteoporosis. So if you're taking raloxifene for osteoporosis reduction, you're getting this breast cancer benefit, and one would expect to see a decrease in rate. But interestingly enough, what everybody focused on about the STAR trial was the fact that raloxifene was not as effective as tamoxifen in reducing the incidence of in situ carcinoma. And while I think that's interesting, remember that there was no placebo arm in that trial. So raloxifene still reduced the incidence of in situ carcinoma relative to what you would have seen with a placebo. But most importantly, you don't die from in situ carcinoma. You die from invasive breast cancer, and there the risk reductions were identical. So I don't see that as a big drawback to the use of the drug. So I think where we really are with chemo prevention is now we have some options. The question is, how much uptake are we going to see by the public of these drugs. And if you think of sort of secondary chemo prevention, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, another place where tamoxifen is indicated in ER ER-positive DCIS, a recent publication looking at use of tamoxifen in women with DCIS across NCCN hospitals showed a very wide range from about 15% of women with DCIS taking the drug up to, I think, about 60%. So 
even for women who have moved a stage beyond pure chemo prevention, there appears to be a great reluctance to take drugs when there's not a survival endpoint. What about your own practice right now? Has that changed in terms of are you more likely now to utilize raloxifene than you were with tamoxifen? Yes, I think that now that we have the raloxifene data in high-risk women, which I think was important, even though we had a fairly big hint from the osteoporosis trials that it was going to be effective, the population of women with osteoporosis was a very different low estrogen environment compared to the high-risk women. So the STAR trial certainly gave me more confidence in offering this as an alternative, and I think there are so many women who just come out saying, I don't want to take tamoxifen, that having an alternative to offer is a good thing. Now, what about identifying women? You know, when this whole thing started out with the tamoxifen prevention trial, we had the Gale model, and I think it kind of like confused people. And then more recently, we've seen the concept of much more simplified approach. You're finding women age 60, for example, with a prior breast biopsy or age 60 with a family history as, you know, enough to qualify as high risk. Is that the way you approach, or how do you actually identify these women? Well, I think that the simplified risk models make a lot of sense when you're not trying to balance risk and toxicity. I think if you have major toxicities, then some more detailed quantification of risk probably makes sense. Personally, I found the Gale model and its availability on the computer relatively simple to use, but I think the problem is risk assessment is not something in a busy surgical practice or most other kind of practices that reimburses well or that most people have a lot of time to spend thinking about. So bottom line right now, as you go you know, see patients and follow up, maybe a patient who's had a benign breast biopsy or a patient with a family history, what will trigger you to say, hey, you know, maybe you ought to think about taking raloxifene? Well, I think that certainly any woman who has a biopsy that shows atypical hyperplasia needs to have chemo prevention discussed with her. There's no doubt about that. Women who have more than one first-degree relative with breast cancer, and for raloxifene, basically postmenopausal women who can get the anti-osteoporosis benefit, I think it's a win-win situation, and there you don't need a lot of risk. So that's pretty easy. What's your experience been seeing people on the drug in terms of vasomotor symptoms and other sort of quality of life issues, particularly compared to tamoxifen? In general, raloxifene has been relatively well tolerated in my practice. I think, you know, when you look at any endocrine manipulations, the spectrum of side effects across women varies fairly radically, and we're starting to learn some of the reasons for that. But in terms of a high rate of women discontinuing raloxifene because of side effects. No, I really haven't seen that. No, related to this is also the question of where are we heading with chemo prevention? And we just had the most recent data from the ATAC trial comparing anastrozole to tamoxifen in invasive breast cancer. And that was just presented at the San Antonio meeting. What were your thoughts about that presentation, specifically in terms of what they saw with more follow-up in terms of both second breast cancers and endometrial cancer? Well, I think that clearly the results are holding up long-term, and 
whether or not there would be a quote-unquote carryover effect with aromatase inhibitors the way we've seen with tamoxifen in terms of long-term reduction in contralateral cancer and long-term survival benefits, I think was a question in people's mind. And this 100-month data suggests that the same carryover effect is present, and I think that's reassuring. Certainly, the difference in the survival curves has not become any more impressive than it ever was over this increased period of time, and it's relatively modest. I think the idea that the osteoporosis fracture problem appears to stabilize over time is also reassuring, although it still doesn't get you past the problem of an increased risk of osteoporosis in the early treatment period, which is something that I think needs monitored and is more of an issue in the chemo prevention setting. And then I think you have the side effect comparison, and certainly most of the side effect profile of the aromatase inhibitors appears to be preferable to that of tamoxifen with the exception of the bone and joint problems, which for some women are very significantly disabling. So I think certainly it makes sense to test this as a chemo prevention question, as is going on in DCIS patients, where we're really going to get the answers of balancing out when you have a very low event rate whether or not there's the same advantage for AIs that you see in invasive cancer, where the risk of breast cancer death is clearly the main driver of benefit. So I still have an open mind on that. It's not something, by and large, that I would prescribe as a chemopreventive at this time. I don't believe that's an appropriate indication right now. I guess, you know, it was interesting to see when they put up the data there of years five through nine, about, as you say, the continued benefit that was seen there with the anastrozole. It really kind of rate, you know, is that whole issue of the long-term history of ER-positive breast cancer, which really has changed in the last few years, the whole perception of the disease and how to deal with the disease. How has that impacted your own practice in terms of picking out people who are maybe in years 5 through 10 to consider starting an AI? Well, I think that you're absolutely correct, certainly for any kind of high-risk ER-positive woman, high-risk meaning positive lymph nodes, larger primary tumors, something like that, I think it's quite clear that longer duration of therapy is better than shorter duration of therapy. For the patient who has the one-centimeter node-negative ER-positive cancer, whether or not they need that kind of prolonged therapy, even though there still is a persistent risk of relapse extending in years 5 through 10, I think, remains an open question. You know, it's interesting. When we first started to see the data coming out, looking at this, again, long-term risk, I mean, recurrence risk that occurs in the years 5 to 10, you have the overview data now that shows, you know, how much of a risk that is. People started talking about, well, maybe this is a little bit like indolent lymphoma. And it's interesting because we have an indolent lymphoma series, and they have that same issue about trying to demonstrate mortality advantage, that you have to have these trials go on for 10 or 15 years. And it's kind of interesting when you really think about the whole strategy is totally different than maybe how we approached breast cancer a few years ago. I think that's true. I think our understanding of the diversity of biologic subsets of breast cancer has really increased astronomically over the last five years. And with the development of targeted therapies, our strategies have become much more focused to the biology of the disease. Things have gotten much more interesting. 
I guess also the issue of the actual measurement of these markers. We've had ER for a while, and that's always been out on the table as being quite you know an issue. And now HER2, which is so much more important now because of adjuvant therapy. How do you, you know, in your own practice, when you see patients who are coming in with outside assays for HER2 ER, patients who are getting within your institution, how do you get to a point where you feel comfortable that your patients had an adequate assessment of their tumor? <laughs> well, I think that that is a real problem in clinical practice. And I think, as you alluded to, it's really a surprise that here, all these years later, we're still arguing about whether or not there is an appropriate quality standard for measuring ER in medical practice. And so certainly I think if we have a positive test, we're happy with that because false positives are uncommon. It's really the patient who's negative. So if there is something about the tumor, for example, in the case of ER, if you have a well-differentiated tumor or you have a classic lobular cancer where one would anticipate the expression of ER and it's not seen, we will repeat that test on any new primary tumor that we accrue during surgery. Same thing for HER2 if there is unequivocal, you know, no staining, but then we accept that. But if our pathologist looks at the core biopsy, for example, and says there's a lot of fixation artifact on the core biopsy when we're looking at it, then we'll just repeat that on the original specimen. Actually, I just heard that now the archetype assay is going to report quantitative ER as part of their report. And I'm curious what you think about that technology, the RT-PCR technology, and they're going to look at HER2, although they haven't, I guess, finalized that yet. Do you think that sort of moving forward, sort of this national kind of reference standard is the way this might get resolved? Well, I think that that's true. You know, in talking to people who practice in high-volume breast centers where they have a high level of pathology standard and good quality control, we have a sort of warped view of the universe of what kind of results you get. And I think there have been several studies that have suggested that when you use RT-PCR measurement of ER, in fact, you get something that correlates better with response than by immunohistochemistry, and that this may indeed be a national standard way to do it. I mean, certainly when you have a single laboratory that is engaged in quality control, you have a better chance of getting a valid result, I think. And with regard to that, we just had a much-awaited report presented at San Antonio looking at the archetype in node-positive patients. I'm curious what your take was on that. Well, I thought that was a fascinating report, actually. I think that, you know, for so long, node positive has been the hallmark of bad outcome and treatment and more treatment, when all of us know that in our practice, we have these patients, some of whom have had greatly large numbers of positive nodes, who are still alive 15 and 20 years later, when by all rights, they shouldn't be. And I think what the Oncotype report on node-positive patients told us is that they are just as diverse as node-negative patients in their biology, and that there is a phenomenon of regional disease, which is not necessarily systemic. Now, I think it is important to point out that all of those patients in that report did receive some form of systemic therapy, and that nobody is suggesting that node-positive patients 
don't need systemic therapy at this point in time. But and that report I, specifically, they all got hormone therapy because they ER are positive, but a good number of them also got chemotherapy. Right. So I think that how I interpret that information is that that level of recurrence score may be a useful guide for the intensity of the chemotherapy that you need to give to somebody, which is not necessarily the same for all node-positive patients. Well, the thing that struck me was that in that trial in the node-positive patients, if they had a low recurrence score, they still had a substantial risk for recurrence. But what was really striking was they didn't seem to benefit by chemotherapy. No. And yes, what that I think says is you need a new target in that group of patients. And I think the other thing that that emphasizes, which is something near and dear to my heart, is the importance of appropriately aggressive local therapy. Because if you look at the Oxford overview analysis on local therapy, what we see for the first time is that appropriate local therapy, whether that's post-mastectomy radiotherapy, post-lumpectomy radiotherapy, impacts survival at 15 years post-treatment. And the magnitude of that benefit on survival in the 5 to 8% range is just the same as what we see with many systemic treatments in lower-risk women. So I think that for women who have high oncotype stores, aggressive kind of tumors, the benefit of local therapy is going to be less, but it makes one pause to think about things like not completing an axillary dissection after a positive sentinel node in somebody who has a significant risk of having other positive nodes left behind that could act as metastatic sources. You were one of the authors on a really fascinating paper discussing this issue of the impact of local therapy on survival and sort of tying into what you were just saying. But there was also a bunch of stuff that you all got into about sort of the theoretical reasons behind, you know, sort of biologically what's going on. Can you kind of like summarize that? Because to be honest with you, it was kind of tough for me to figure that out. It was a little over my head. (laughs) You mean it wasn't clear as mud to you? (laughs) (laughs) That was interesting, though. The biology was fascinating. Well, I think that the argument that we were making about local therapy in that paper, which was the New England Journal of Medicine paper, was that uncontrolled local disease has the potential to act as a source of new metastatic disease in the future. And there are several lines of evidence that support that. If you look at the post-mastectomy radiotherapy data, Local recurrence tends to occur early at two or three years post-treatment, but at five years post-treatment, you really don't see a survival difference between the radiated and the non-radiated patients. That comes later, suggesting that, in fact, they are reseeding. So that makes the argument that aggressive local therapy early on has the potential to be of benefit. The other thing that we were talking about is the synergy between the effectiveness of local therapy and systemic therapy. So if you look back at the original studies that said local therapy doesn't impact on survival, things like NSABP B04, an old mastectomy trial where no systemic therapy was given, even though patients had big tumors and lots of positive nodes, there was no difference between doing a radical mastectomy and doing a simple mastectomy and dissecting the axilla later. Same thing in NSABP B06, where you look at the radiation after lumpectomy versus the no radiation arm, big difference in local failure rates, 
no difference in survival in a study where only node-positive patients received systemic therapy. So what we're arguing is that as the effectiveness of systemic therapy has increased, the potential benefit of surgery in removing small foci of disease that might be resistant to systemic therapy is also going to increase. And that at some point in time, ideally, we'll go over the top of the curve on the other side where systemic therapy is so effective that it will completely eradicate bulky disease. We're not there yet. If you look at complete response rates in neoadjuvant therapy studies, you see that, you know, even with things like ACT as a neoadjuvant therapy, that pathologic complete response is only seen in about 25% of women. Now, the neoadjuvant trastuzumab data is more interesting because that says the complete response rate may be as high as 50%, but still that leaves 50% of patients with residual disease and needing local therapy. And you mentioned the issue of post-mastectomy radiation therapy. And again, at the San Antonio meeting, Richard Pito presented the most recent update of the overview, now clearly showing, and I'm not sure I've seen this anywhere before, you know, a survival benefit of one to three positive nodes. Was that your read? That was my read as well. I have not seen that breakdown. And I thought that was very interesting because what to do with patients with one to three positive nodes remains a major clinical issue, and particularly if you do a lot of breast reconstruction where there are some significant cosmetic downsides to the use of radiation, knowing who to treat and who not to treat is difficult. The PEDO data very clearly showed that there was a survival benefit in patients with one to three positive nodes, but, and this is an important but, that was when they were seeing local failure rates in the 15 to 20% without radiation in that subset. And if you look at some certainly single institution data from the United States, local failure rates for patients with one positive node and a T1 or T2 primary tumor are not 15 to 20%. So I think it still leaves me in the position of being much more comfortable at the high end of the scale. So if I have somebody who has three positive nodes, three or four centimeter tumor to say, yes, this is going to be of benefit to you. But in the smaller tumor burdens, one positive node, two-centimeter tumor, I can't say that that data has completely convinced me that radiotherapy is a benefit. And I know that's the answer that you've given for every time I've ever interviewed you about this question. So, I mean, and it always seemed like it was going to be an events issue, that it was going to be a continuum going down just the same way it is with systemic therapy, node positive, node negative. And it sounds like that's still pretty much the way you view it. I think that's absolutely correct. Let's talk a little bit about neoadjuvant therapy and specifically the issue of using neoadjuvant systemic therapy to improve the rate of breast conservation. I know you've done some work looking at that in terms of what's actually going on in the United States. Can you talk about what is happening right now and also how it plays out in your own practice? Sure. I think that neoadjuvant therapy to downstage women who have unicentric breast cancers that are large relative to the size of their breast, where you can't do a lumpectomy up front with a good cosmetic result, is an underutilized therapy. I mean, here we have a treatment which is supported by multiple randomized trials so that we know that survival is equal whether you give the chemotherapy up front or after surgery. So we don't need to worry that we're harming patients. 
So in women who would prefer to have breast conservation if that was medically possible, this is a great approach to take. I think that what has certainly held surgeons back, perhaps, from referring these patients initially to medical oncology is the fact that we don't yet have a great way of evaluating the response to preoperative treatment. So that tumors tend to die in a patchy fashion. Mammography, if you have calcifications, they're still going to be there, so that doesn't tell you what's alive or dead. You oftentimes have some density and fibrosis. The same thing is true on ultrasound. Now, although I am not the world's biggest fan of MRI, this is one of the circumstances where perhaps MRI is a better way of evaluating the degree of response, but it still can both greatly overestimate and underestimate the extent of residual viable tumor. So that leaves the surgeon in a position where they're not really sure if a lumpectomy is feasible or not, and many people have adopted the idea that they just go back and try to resect the entire volume that was occupied by the tumor initially, which of course is crazy because if you could do that, you should have done it in the first place before you ever gave chemotherapy. So when I'm discussing this with a patient, what I tell them is that right now you're not a candidate for breast conservation. Chemotherapy may allow that to happen, and we know that at least 30% of women will downstage to allow breast conservation based on the B18 trial. And I tell them that they're going to receive chemotherapy treatment postoperatively anyway, so they're not getting any excess treatment, and that what we will do is give the treatment, re-image them. If it looks like breast conservation is feasible, we will attempt it, but we never know for sure that it's worked until we get the final pathology back that tells us that we have a clear margin and we don't have viable residual tumor dotted all over the specimen. And some people in that circumstance are willing to try that. Others are not, I think, often because their friends and neighbors all have surgery first, so they feel like they need to have surgery first, too. Interestingly, in a survey we did of surgeons identified through the SEER registry, only about 37% of them strongly or moderately endorsed the idea of giving preoperative chemotherapy to downstage a large T2 tumor and allow breast conservation. So perhaps it's an idea whose time has not yet fully arrived. What about neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? That's utilized a lot overseas. We have more sensitivity now to the issue that maybe even these tumors that are strongly ER and PR positive aren't even as sensitive to chemotherapy and certainly sensitive to hormone therapy. What about that in clinical practice? I think neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is clearly something that is underemployed in the United States. As you point out, there's a host of studies that show that a predictor of poor response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy is the presence of positive ER or ER and PR, so that if you have a large low-grade tumor which strongly expresses hormone receptor positivity, the best way to shrink it is with endocrine therapy. I think the concern with that approach here has been that this is often a slow process where it takes you a good three or four months to see that response, and physicians get uncomfortable that response isn't happening. Patients sometimes get uncomfortable, and that has been an uncommonly employed approach here. There's no reason not to do it. 
Getting back to the issue of surgery after neoadjuvant systemic therapy, you mentioned the issue of how the tumor recedes and whether or not you're going to have positive margins. Are there any clues that you have clinically before surgery in terms of whether or not you're going to be able to successfully do uh, breast conservation? Well, I think clearly the greater the degree of radiologic response. So if you have someone who has both a clinical and a radiologic complete response, it's relatively uncommon to go in there and find very extensive tumor. If you have someone who appears to have had no response clinically and radiologically, that's usually fairly reliable. It's when you have some degree of shrinkage and some residual tumor, which is evident that it's often hard to judge how much extra microscopic disease is around. What about sentinel node biopsy in the patient getting neoadjuvant therapy? That's a pretty controversial issue. How do you see it? (laughs) I would say that's definitely a controversial issue. We had more debate about that at a recent meeting that I was running than almost any other subject in local therapy, which is saying a lot. So I think that the data that I use to justify performing sentinel node biopsy after neoadjuvant therapy is that, first of all, we know that the neoadjuvant therapy will reduce the incidence of nodal positivity. So you're saving women an axillary dissection. And although this was not part of the study, the data that Terry Mamounis has published out of B18, looking at some 424 patients who had a sentinel node biopsy after neoadjuvant therapy, suggests that the accuracy is just the same as it was for women in the same time period who were having primary sentinel node biopsy. Now, granted, we don't have long-term follow-up data on axillary failure rates in that population yet, but I'm fairly comfortable with that. I think the situation that I am not comfortable with sentinel node biopsy is in the patient who starts out with a positive axillary node, either a clinically positive axillary node or documented by needle biopsy to be positive pre-treatment, gets neoadjuvant therapy and downstages so that they are now clinically node negative. Should you do a sentinel node biopsy on that patient? And the data that exists is fairly limited, but what it says is that there is clearly a higher false negative rate in that population, which may be as high as 20 or 30 percent. And most people who have one grossly positive node have other positive nodes, and the likelihood of axillary pathologic CR is only about 20 or 25 percent. So putting all that together, I consider that still an indication for axillary dissection. I'm curious about your comment in terms of the most controversial issue or local therapy issue in the meeting you were talking about. What are some of the other areas of controversy in terms of local therapy of breast cancer that you hear people asking about? Well, I think that another one is, of course, the use of MRI in the patient with cancer. And I think that the picture here is changing. The way I look at this is we published many years ago that we could select patients for breast conservation and have an unexpected conversion to mastectomy rate of only about 3%. So standard clinical criteria, physical exam, mammography are pretty accurate in doing that. And if you look at outcome, which is ultimately the most important thing, Irene Wapner reported for the NSABP a couple years ago that in 
adjuvant trials of node-negative women treated during the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, the 10-year local failure rates in the breast in the women who received systemic therapy were between 3 and 6%. So by selecting women without MRI, local failure is going to be seen at 10 years in only 3 to 6%. So now we have MRI that comes along that tells us that we can find additional cancer in as many as 15 to 25% of women. What's the most common change in therapy that happens because of that cancer? You end up getting a mastectomy that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So how does that all fit together? And that's been the big controversy. The argument of those who favor MRI is that we're finding cancer that has to be good, even if you've been successfully treating it for the past 20 years with radiotherapy. Well, this month in January 2008 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology is a very interesting paper published by Larry Solon and the Penn Group in which they retrospectively examine women treated during the same time period, 217 of whom had an MRI pre-local therapy and another about 450 who did not. And they do the appropriate adjustments for things that influence local failure. And at eight years, the local failure rates in those two groups are 3% for the MRI group and 4% for the no MRI group. No difference. So I think that should sound a real note of caution about subjecting women to mastectomy for disease that's found only on MRI when we don't know that you're actually benefiting them. So in your own practice, in what situations are you using MR for breast cancer patients? Relatively few situations. I use it for women who are known or suspected BRCA1 or 2 carriers who have cancer and who have elected to be treated with a breast-conserving approach, so they're going to have breast tissue left behind. I use it for women who present with metastatic disease in the axilla and a primary that cannot be identified in the breast on mammogram, ultrasound, or physical exam. And I use it if there is a diagnostic dilemma on the basis of conventional imaging that the radiologist cannot resolve. Now, that's fewer than 10% of women with breast cancer. So getting back to this issue of controversies in local therapy, what are some of the other questions, and is margin still a big issue? Oh, I think margins remains an issue. People continue to obsess about margins, and I think margins, clearly negative margins defined as tumor not touching the ink, remain important in local control. Beyond that, it has been very, very hard to prove that larger pieces of normal breast tissue enhance local control, particularly in women with invasive breast cancer. In collaboration with my colleague Malcolm Kell in Ireland, we did a meta-analysis of publications on the subject of DCIS involving about 5,500 women, both randomized and non-randomized trials. And while we were able to show a higher local failure rate when margins were less than 2 millimeters compared to greater than 2 millimeters, we could not show any difference between 2 millimeters and 5 millimeters or bigger. And if you look at surveys that have been done, the most common margin definition in this country is tumor not touching the ink, which is the NSABP definition, followed by two millimeters. I think justifications for these big one-centimeter margins, five-millimeter margins, are lacking. 
So based on that, is your sort of bar not touching the ink or two millimeters? It depends. I think there is not a correct answer for all patients. For example, the anterior and the posterior margin are anatomically limited, so that if you have gone up to the subcutaneous fat or down to the pectoral fascia posteriorly, if your margin is not touching the ink, you're done. It's the margins within the breast itself that may indicate residual tumor, and there I pay attention to both tumor histology and patient age, so that we know that the likelihood of residual tumor is lower if you have a pure infiltrating ductal cancer than if you have a lobular cancer or if you have an infiltrating ductal cancer with an extensive intraductal component. So I'll take tumor not touching the ink for pure ductal cancer as long as it's a relatively small amount of tumor that comes up close to the margin. If you've got two centimeters of tumor right up next to that ink, that's probably a case to re-excise. Younger women, by younger meaning women under 40, have higher local failure rates than their older counterparts. Part of that seems to be ameliorated by a margin of at least two millimeters. So in young women, again, I'm more prone to re-excise than I am in older women. So I take all those things into account and also take into account whether or not the need for re-excision would mean conversion to a mastectomy, which is something I would virtually never do for just a close margin. Where are we right now with partial breast radiation? We have the NSABP RTOG trial out there, but what about in a non-protocol setting? What's going on right now in the United States in terms of PBI, and what are you doing? Well, I think the use of PBI does remain a controversy because we're not going to have the data that we need from that big NSABP RTOG trial for a number of years. So I think there is a lot of partial breast irradiation going on across the country outside of protocol. And my main concern about that is at least many patients I have seen in my practice actually have no idea that that is not yet standard treatment known to be equivalent to whole breast irradiation. So I think that if you're going to do PBI off protocol, it makes sense to be conservative, by which I mean don't radiate younger premenopausal women where, or don't use partial breast irradiation in younger premenopausal women who have a higher baseline risk of local recurrence. We know from the trials of radiation versus no radiation that there's a higher risk of local failure in node-positive patients, so it's probably not real prudent to treat those either. And tumors that grow in a more discontinuous fashion, extensive introductal component, lots of lymphatic invasion in the breast, lobular cancer, I think it is not wise to treat those patients with partial breast irradiation. So the arm of the NSABP RTOG protocol that has already filled and is no longer open for accrual, namely the low-risk older postmenopausal women, I think those criteria are appropriate for treatment off study as long as you tell the patient that we don't yet have long-term follow-up data. What about age? Is there a specific age cutoff where you will not use PBI? I would be most reluctant to use PBI in somebody under the age of 40. What about the specific type of PBI? There are several available. What kind do you utilize? 
Well, I actually am primarily a fan of external beam PBI because I think it's more widely applicable than any other method. Catheter brachytherapy, I have no experience with the mammocyte device because of the limitations due to the need for skin separation I often have difficulty using in patients in whom I might want to use it because if you incise the breast tissue and don't sew it back together, then fluid will come up that incision and make it look like you've got fluid right underneath the skin by ultrasound and that you don't have skin separation. What about the issue of oncoplastic surgery and breast cancer? Can you comment on that (laughs) and what it is? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I know what it is. (laughs) I guess that depends on who you're talking to. I think anyone who does breast surgery in a reasonable fashion should always have cosmesis in mind because breast conserving therapy is not a better treatment than mastectomy. It's just a more cosmetic treatment when it's done right. So having said that, I think what a lot of people refer to when they talk about oncoplastic surgery are moving pieces of breast tissue around inside the breast to try to reconstruct defects, making incisions, for example, in the inframammary fold and burrowing up through the breast to get to the upper breast because those incisions are less cosmetically visible. Things like partial latissimus reconstruction are certainly oncoplastic surgery. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that ultimately the most important thing is treating the cancer appropriately. And that means not doing anything that will interfere with local control. And all of these oncoplastic techniques are great as long as you get negative margins the first time around. But if you don't succeed in getting negative margins, you've now changed the anatomy of the breast around and you don't really know where your positive margin came from, at least nobody who advocates this approach has been able to explain to me how they figure that out. And so it's sort of like the situation of when you get unexpected cancer out in the tissue fragments of a reduction mammoplasty, and there's no hole left in there, and you're not really sure what the margin is, how do you know if you can treat the patient with breast conservation? So that tempers my enthusiasm a little bit for some forms of oncoplastic surgery. And in particular, given the findings from the Oxford overview that failure to maintain local control reduces survival, I think that should be a warning note. Having said that, I think that for the patient with a large tumor relative to the size of their breast, perfectly appropriate approaches are either neoadjuvant therapy to shrink the tumor or a big resection, evaluation of the margins, and then a partial latissimus reconstruction. What about the issue of surgery and primary breast cancer in the face of metastatic disease? You've been involved with research looking at that, and also there have been some newer papers addressing that you've commented on in the literature. Where are we right now at that fascinating issue? Well, I think this is another big area of controversy. I think things have changed in metastatic breast cancer, and that's why we're revisiting this issue, because back at the time when the rule that you didn't operate on metastatic breast cancer was made up, we didn't have effective systemic therapy. The tumors tended to be very large things that were difficult to surgically remove, and there was often bulky nodal disease. Now, as we have entered the era of screening for metastatic disease with things like PET-CT scans, 
We're finding a lot of people with very, very low-volume metastatic disease who in the past we would have called high-risk stage 2 and treated very aggressively for cure. But now they're being bumped up into stage 4 and treated for palliation. At the same time, systemic therapy has become more effective. So if you look at survival curves for metastatic breast cancer over time, survival is improving. So a number of years ago, Seema Khan and I looked at the National Cancer Database of the American College of Surgeons, and we looked at about 16,000 women who presented between 1990 and 1993 with metastatic disease and an intact primary. Obviously, this was not a randomized study. A little more than half of the patients had surgery, and when we looked at survival outcomes, there was about a 40% reduction in the hazard of death in patients who had surgery to negative margins, even after you adjusted for things like number of metastatic sites, visceral versus soft tissue metastases, and the type of systemic treatment received. Since we published that paper, there have been at least three other full-length publications on this topic, all of which have shown a virtually identical finding. Now, the problem is that you can never completely exclude bias in this setting, and that's why there are now finally a lot of discussions about doing a randomized trial to really address this question. So in the meantime, the way I approach this is, first of all, I think surgery is never the appropriate first therapy for somebody with metastatic disease. They need to be treated systemically first because if they don't respond to systemic treatments, they're not going to get any benefit from surgery and you can save them the morbidity of an operation. For patients who do respond and have stable disease and limited metastatic sites, then I think surgery is worth considering. The longer the disease is stable, the more attractive that proposition is, and it's certainly something I would never push a patient into. If they have any reluctance about surgery, then I tell them to forget it, because this is definitely an unproven therapy at this point in time. And what about axillary dissection in that situation? Well, I think if you're going to do it, it only makes sense to do the axilla too. I mean, residual tumor, whether it's in the breast or the axilla, still has the potential to spread. But I think the other thing worth mentioning is that in our study, for example, 40% of the patients had T1 and T2 primary tumors, so they can be treated with lumpectomy. This is not an automatic indication for mastectomy.